Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of The New Health Club Show. My guest today is Hamilton Morris. He's an American journalist, documentarian, and scientific researcher. He's the creator and director of the television series Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, in which he investigates the chemistry, history, and cultural impact of various psychoactive drugs. The show has been produced in various forms since 2009. Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia began as a monthly column about psychoactive drugs written by Morris for Vice magazine. When given the opportunity to film short documentaries to accompany his written pieces, Morris began to produce the show as an online documentary series, starting with the release of The Sapo Diaries that same year. Now Hamilton is on the third season of his show, which was released on January 4th, 2021. The show runs on Vice TV and YouTube. Hamilton started to engage early into very personalized and you could say customized research of drugs and substances. He always had an interesting aura around him on camera, a mixture of a daring guinea pig and a scientist. The episodes of his show had names that made it clear how unjudgmental and curious Hamilton was approaching psychedelic substances as his topic. For example, The show of the South African Qualud was one episode called, or Fish and Trips, or Wizard of DMT, or A Fugal Fairy Tale, or The Synthetic Toad Venom Machine. At this point in his life as a psychedelic expert, Hamilton is moving now more and more towards psychedelic research, inspired by the American biochemist Alexander Sasha Shulgin. So now Morris has mainly the tweaking of molecules in mind instead of producing media. Hamilton and I talk about the meaning of molecules and the freedom of researching new molecules, about the advantages to approach psychedelics in a completely unjudgmental and undogmatic fashion, and how the big questions in science are resolved by asking yourself little questions first. And of course, we try to address, if that's even possible, the mystery of psychedelics, the psychedelic toad and DMT as much as possible, of course. Please enjoy the show and Hamilton. Today we have Hamilton Morris on the show. And um, so I was really studying your journalism journey, what one could say. And I thought it was so interesting that in 2012, um, There was this, let's say this, this when, when your show started, it was this kind of cool, uh, colorful, almost like um, band leader, dude looking guy who was running in between like psychedelic colors. And now you kind of seem to be this, let's say rather scientifically, um, you, come, you come across rather like, like a scientist if you just also watch the trailer. So what would you say has really happened between this time where you started to to go to the Amazon and kind of experiment and now you rather come across like somebody who really works in a laboratory? Well, one very crucial thing that's happened is I started working in a lab. That, okay. That's uh, 
maybe one very literal change that has occurred. You know, when those first videos were made, I was still in college. I was 21 when I made the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had studied science, but I didn't have any personal experience with lab work of any kind. And as I was evolving in my reporting, I was also evolving in my knowledge of the subject. Um, I started working with a chemist named Jason Wallach at a small pharmacy school in Philadelphia called the University of the Sciences. And that's probably the change that you're observing. You know, we have done an enormous amount of research together, published peer-reviewed scientific publications. And I was always interested in the scientific aspects of this world. But as I continued working, I became more personally involved with it. Um, And also more personally involved with the creation of the show. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I sort of saw myself as a writer that was writing articles about these things and making a video to accompany the article. But the article was what I was really interested in creating. And, uh, and then I started to embrace the filmmaking aspects of it. And especially in the third season, um, due to a number of factors, COVID, um, a lot of the people that I was working with had to leave the production for various reasons. It ended up being, um, you know, more like making an independent film than a TV show. There were very, very few people working on it. Um, and so I had a lot of control over everything that I did pretty much complete control. And at the beginning, I, I suppose I had a little bit less, uh, you know, I just didn't, understand the filmmaking aspects as well. I never studied film production or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. I didn't think about what lenses I was using or how best to tell a story cinematically. That was just something that evolved as well. Okay. But I mean, like I watched this one episode where you um, were traveling to South America to get the frog poison burned into your arm. And Uh I mean... So, I mean, you were like, how old were you? Like, tw- yeah, 21, right? You, that was very much yeah. the beginning. So, but it, it seemed that you were actually, you were already very much interested in being like a, like a guinea pig or like to have a guinea pig experience, which most people, I feel like in the psychedelic field develop rather later. So, but you were very like, I'm doing this. I feel like this. So it was very precise. I think people are are cautious about acknowledging their own experiences with these things. Mm -hmm. And part of it was just that I was naive. You know, I was 21. I didn't know that people would really care about it one way or another. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, lots of people use Fila Medusa bicolor skin secretions. It's not that unusual. Hunter Biden has done it. Um, (laughs) And and at that time, it was a little bit less common. But I saw no reason not to try it myself. Um, You know, that video was made for what at the time was a pretty small audience. Mm -hmm. Um, This was not made for YouTube. It wasn't on YouTube for years. It was on a small proprietary player. 
And it was just a, a different time. I didn't know. I certainly didn't expect that people would continue watching that mm-hmm. uh, a decade later. People still talk about that piece. I haven't watched it since I made it. I can imagine that I wouldn't like it if I looked at it now, um, mostly because I've learned a lot about how people respond to things, what sorts of things are enraging, what sorts of things are um, interesting, how best to handle these subjects in such a way that they are uh, better understood by people. Mm -hmm. So that early work is not, it's not something I'm really that interested in outside Mm -hmm. of, you know, it's where I started, but it's not something that I would recommend to anyone say, Oh, check out this thing that I made when I was 21. Um, But people still talk about it. I think people still talk about it often in the context of criticizing me, Um, even though the, yeah, I think so. Because even though I think the the subsequent work that I've made is, been viewed by far more people that has been a kind of thing that people if they're criticizing me they'll point out like this guy used to be so edgy he did this thing that as far as oh. i'm concerned is not all that edgy okay but, <laughs> uh, but you know that's that's the attitude um and and also just this kind of people make such a big deal out of consuming these things on camera it's kind of it's almost i think analogous to the way that people make a big deal out of um, out of like nudity or sex on camera, even though mm-hmm. it's very common. Most people have sex. Most people are naked. All people are naked at some point. If you do it on camera, suddenly it's a huge deal. Yeah. So that's another thing that I didn't quite understand at the beginning because I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. This is, you know, something people will find educational, but I didn't think that it would be so sensational in people's eyes. I mean, it, it had something very precise, though. I mean, I can understand what you say that you're like, okay, you were young, you were just try it, trying it out, and it was you didn't really, you know, look into what you were doing there. But it had it had almost something to me like a scientific research. Well, it was precision. interesting, you know. I, yeah. At that time, yeah, I was interested, of course, yeah. in the pharmacology and the chemistry of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just a different time. Okay. So, I mean, I, I listened to your podcast with Tim Ferriss and, and, and saw the Joe Rogan show. And I mean, a big topic for you now, I feel, is to be very responsible as a journalist in terms of psychedelics. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I mean, it, that's, which is great. And can you talk a little bit about how this, let's say, responsibility developed over the last years? Yeah. Well, Again, this is something that comes with gaining an appreciation of what happens when you talk about something in the public sphere, Mm -hmm. when you are a a normal person with no experience conveying a message to millions or tens of millions of people, you assume that people understand you and get what you are doing. You assume that when you make a joke, people know that your joke is a joke. You assume that when you're doing something for innocent purposes, that people understand that it's innocent. But when you start making things for a large audience, you realize people will not necessarily get the jokes Mm. that I'm making. People will not necessarily interpret the things that I'm doing correctly. And something small uh, can have a really big impact. You know, even just talking about a drug can suddenly establish a market for that drug or can 
alter people's attitudes toward that drug for better or worse. I mean, I, I wrote an article with Jason Wallach years ago about a chemical called 5-bromo-DMT, which is the only psychedelic that's ever been isolated from the ocean and only the ocean. And, uh, and it was kind of an oddity that had been described by Alexander Shulgin and some natural product chemists. And we published the first human evaluation of that particular drug. I think within a couple of months, it was available as a gray market commodity from China. There were reports on Reddit of people smoking it, reports of people injecting it. And that was also a kind of stark confrontation with the influence and the responsibility that comes with talking about these things publicly. But I mean, is it also that people, I mean, people must have approached you and, and I mean, since you're doing this show in terms of uh, what are you doing and is this kind of, are you glamorizing drugs? Is this something that happened or what was it, was that never really something that happened or that, where people just complained in a way? Um, it's not so much glamorizing drugs. I think there's a lot of people that misconstrue the motivation as get, they, they want to reduce it and they mm -hmm. want to pretend that it's about using a drug. Um, that was another thing that I learned early on is that people would say, oh, this guy just wants to get high. Oh, and, okay. uh, and, and that was like one of the most bizarre criticisms of all, because I would think, well, surely if I wanted to get high, if the point was to use a drug, I wouldn't make a documentary about exactly, it. Yeah. That makes it, uh, <laughs> it, it conservatively a hundred times more difficult, maybe more like a thousand times more difficult. If you want to use a drug, you can just use it privately and not put it on the internet and not make a documentary about it. It's far, far, far easier. I can tell you that from experience, having made a documentary in which I use a drug and having used drugs without cameras present. If you're looking to use a drug, definitely I encouraged you to do it without cameras if the point is to just use a drug. Yeah. Um, but that was an idea. And I think, again, this comes from this, this idea that no one could ever actually be interested in drugs as a subject for science or filmmaking. The intention would have to be uh, some kind of purely hedonist drug-taking motivation. Um, yeah, so, and, and I began to recognize the, Uh, it, the extraordinary power of consuming a drug. I mean, I even at one point uh, calculated how much of my show is me using a drug. <laughs> It's maybe like two or three percent of the footage of the of the actual mm -hmm. TV show. But people sometimes treat it like it's 100%. They neglect the oh, you okay. know, 97, 98% that is chemistry, that is, uh, you know, interviews with scientists, that is historical, everything else. Uh, because there's something so, I guess, amazing to people about consuming a psychoactive drug. So that's, I, I another thing that I learned was just how distracting it is to, incorporate that type of footage into an episode. But I mean, it's also, I think, because there are not that many, let's say, yeah, narratives, but not many pictures around somebody doing a psychedelic besides the typical, you know, movies where it's actually, oh, it's making, somebody's making fun, like the director's making fun of somebody, some character doing LSD or like, celebrities doing weird jokes on doing psychedelics. So 
there's not that many footage, I want to say, around where you can actually see how this actually could look like if somebody does that. So I think this is also something. There's a lot on YouTube. There's a ton. I mean, pretty much any drug. So much that yeah. researchers even use uh, <laughs> YouTube as a tool to study. That was part of my Salvia episode is I okay. interviewed somebody who did an entire, uh, published an entire paper studying human response to Salvia mm -hmm. via YouTube videos. Okay, wow. Okay, uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I feel like most of, most of these videos then look so horrible that you don't want to you know, you just skip them after, but then you get your algorithm tells you another hundred more and you just can't stop maybe sometimes, but yeah. I mean, still not, not a lot of them are really good, but so when do you, th when was the time when you really thought you would get into becoming more like a chemist or when, when did that really kind of start to take you in? Uh, probably around 2009, mm -hmm. I met this chemist, Jason Wallach, and we initially collaborated on analysis of a zombie powder sample that I'd collected in Haiti to see if it contained this chemical called TTX. Mm -hmm. And it did not contain TTX, but we became friends and started doing a lot of chemistry work together um, at that time. And really up until very recently, the idea that there would be any kind of financial support for psychedelic research seemed mm -hmm. out of the question. Um, all of the chemists that I admired, like Alexander Shulgin, had worked without funding, without much institutional support. Someone like David Nichols is maybe an exception, but even he, I don't think, was able to receive large amounts of funding for the chemistry that he was doing. But the nice thing about chemistry is that if you're working at a university that already has analytical instruments and a lab set up, you can do a lot of work for not that much money. It's not like doing, you know, human clinical trials where millions of dollars of funding are required to set up uh, even a small experiment. Um, and so, yeah, we were able to do a lot of work and we continue working together to this day. And that is, that's what happened. Yeah. Then you got kind of sucked into also like maybe producing instead of just kind of showing, right? These things. Was that something that happened? I mean, I was always very active in making the pieces. I just didn't, there was also less money. We were, yeah, you know, filming sure. with one camera. There was no professional sound recording. Um, it was made, the early pieces were made with me, a producer, and one other person who's holding a camera. And the creative possibilities were limited. The budgets were smaller. It wasn't until I started working on the uh, HBO news show that Vice had that I started, you know, working with two cameras simultaneously and using professional mm -hmm. sound and started to learn more about how to put together a slightly more polished piece. But again, all these things, both the science and the filmmaking were a slow learning process that spanned over a decade. Mm -hmm. And I mean, are you, are you interested actually in moving further also in psychedelic research now? Is this something that you are more and more interested Very in? Much, that's what I'm doing. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's what I'm doing exclusively now. 
Okay, so but but can you imagine also like in in a university context to do that? That's that is what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I'm going, I, I, didn't... I am working full time at a, at a university. Oh, okay, sorry, now. because that's kind of hard to find about you. That's not really okay. So what what university is it? Which one? It's the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, okay. and they recently got a lot of funding to mm -hmm. do psychedelic research, mm -hmm. and so I am going to be working full-time, actually wow. starting this month okay. with Chase and Wallach um, in this new psychedelic drug discovery center, designing new psychedelic drugs. So that's, that's something that's very exciting. Um, and it's, it's strange because in the past, it was far easier to get funding to make documentaries about psychedelics than it was to get funding to actually study psychedelics. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas now that has changed. Yeah. There's so much pharmaceutical business interest in psychedelics that there is a tremendous amount of funding and resources available now to do scientific research. And that is the main reason uh, that I'm making this transition is because suddenly that's easier to do. Um, and this is something that I, you know, would have always wanted to do. I even, um, at one point there was a, a change in drug policy in New Zealand where they established, they established some laws that would allow people to sell recreational drugs if they underwent some version of a clinical trial. I don't mm -hmm. know if you, are you familiar with this? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and there was, there was, yeah. There was this guy, Matt Bowden. Mm -hmm. And he had what was essentially a, you know, a pharmaceutical lab um, and they would design drugs without any kind of medical pretense. These drugs were not meant to treat PTSD or mm -hmm. depression mm -hmm. or, or anything of that nature. It was done explicitly to produce an enjoyable drug effect in healthy adults and I thought that was amazing. I was so excited by that research that I was wanted to move to New Zealand to work in that lab mm -hmm. uh, because that was I thought that was the first time anything like that had ever been possible. But subsequently, the uh, lab that he was working at was shut down, and and the research that he was doing on synthetic cannabinoids became very controversial. Um, and there was another six, seven years before something remotely analogous became possible in the United States. I mean, what, what is the thing, what is your idea what you would like to make or to research or to, or to create at this point? Do you have a specific thing in mind? Yeah. Molecule in mind? Yeah, there are, there are, yeah. Yeah. There are all sorts of specific research goals. Um, but one of the main ones is, is basic exploration. You know, I think that what, Shulgin did was on one hand, very open-ended, non-hypothesis driven exploratory research where he wasn't saying, oh, okay, I want to replace the bromine atom in 2CB with an iodine atom in order to see if it better treats PTSD. He was doing basic structure activity relationship research to see what happened. And by the standards of most contemporary science, 
um, which is almost always hypothesis driven. It's a little bit weird to say, what am I doing? I'm just exploring. I'm just mm-hmm. seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. But using that research methodology, he was able to make an absolutely extraordinary number of scientifically and medically important discoveries. So I think that that basic desire to explore the unknown, to design new compounds, examine their pharmacology, and see if new unanticipated effects are observed, um, will continue to yield useful new substances. But of course, there's also um, a lot of interest in optimizing the therapeutic properties of the psychedelics that are um, currently being examined as potential treatments for various psychological disorders. So, I mean, one thing that's becoming popular, I feel, is that the research to create, to, to find a, a substance or to kind of tweak um, psychedelics, that the psychedelic experience would not happen, but let's say the cure for depression or anxiety would come out of this. And some people say this is great because um, like any, if, if anybody would say, yeah, well, but you have to go to suffer to go through a, you, to go through your trauma and um, it might be very difficult to go through this, but then you would come out of the other end and it would be great. You kind of cured. So, and then some people would say to that, well, um, that's a very puni- uh, puritanical way of looking at it, that you need to suffer to find a cure to your trauma or something. So how is your take on the, let's say, the, this kind of, I want to say, like big discussion around the, um, the non-psychoactive cure with psychedelics? The non-psychoactive cure with psychedelics? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, in a, in a way that... I mean, a lot of a lot of people say, or like a lot of researchers also say that they would actually be interested in finding psychedelics that oh, don't have yeah. the psychedelic experience. Yeah. But you, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, but you could come out with the same effect as with the psychedelic experience. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I'm. I'm open to it. I'm open to everything. Yeah. I think a lot of people want to make rules about what is right yeah. or what is wrong. And- we're at a juncture where there is so much that is not known that I'm open to anyone doing whatever they think is valuable. Mm-hmm. I think that if I had to bet that that's probably not the best path, that would be my guess. Mm-hmm. I could easily be wrong. I mean, there, there is now quite a bit of research um, that is controversial in its applicability to humans that suggests that you can strip away aspects of the psychoactivity of psychedelics and retain some sort of therapeutic effect via neurogenesis. But um, I am skeptical. I'm skeptical, but I'm also happy that people are looking at these things. I think it's all part of the process of understanding the pharmacology of these substances. So anyone that's doing that, I wish them the best. I think the, the track record for it hasn't been great historically. Mm-hmm. You know, there was 18MC, which was an early attempt to strip away the psychedelic properties of Ibogaine. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and, and it worked on some level in that it retained uh, the affinity for the uh, hypothesized anti-addictive 
uh, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, but it also lost other aspects that are considered desirable, like the release of neurotrophic factors like BDNF and GDNF. So, and, and I don't think it ever, you know, made it to human clinical trials as far as I know. Um, so people have been trying this for a while and, you know, I wish them the best of luck, but in my personal experience using psychedelics, it has always felt that the psychoactive properties and the psychological experience is a crucial component of what makes them mm. therapeutic and unlike other drugs. So, you know, I, I would hope that I, I know that people are very worried about that. They're saying, oh, pharmaceutical companies are going to strip away everything that makes these substances visionary and spiritual and desirable. Um, my guess is that even if they want to do that, it's probably not going to work out all that well. Mm. Um, so it's probably a moot point ultimately, but it's worth trying. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's in this same context, there's this very, I mean, at least here, there's a big discussion now about the, the so-called S word, like the spiritual, the spiritual component mm -hmm. in, 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 in the psychedelic discussion. So, and, um, I mean, some people want to, let's say, attach a spiritual component to, mo to a molecule or to a substance. Let's say, for example, I, I remember reading articles saying, yeah, psilocybin is more like a feminine substance and it makes people kind of more soft and, and open. And then LSD is very harsh and very, um, yeah, kind of strict. So, and, and what, I, what I really liked in, in your interview, I think it was at Tim Ferriss, when you said that um, the molecule actually itself doesn't carry the information. It's basically the human being that brings it into the, into the experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely, you know, it's a fact. I wouldn't personally ascribe these feminine masculine attributes to a molecule, yeah. but I know that historically that has often been the case. Um, and that's part of a sort of animist essentialist view of these substances that often emerges in a culture that doesn't have a materialist scientific framework for understanding these substances. So that is the framework that works for them. But we do live in a culture where people appreciate the, or many people appreciate the fact that these things are molecules mm -hmm. that are inanimate constellations of carbon and hydrogen and, and nitrogen and oxygen the cactus just tipped over. Okay. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> And so I think that it's important to appreciate that this substance is coming from us, not from the molecule. And, and that's, you know, what really matters at the end of the day. That's what makes these things, I think, somewhat different from other psychoactive drugs that are operating in a simpler way psychologically, you know, a stimulant like Ritalin. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's also operating on the psychology of the individual that consumes it, but it's not as 
complicated experientially. It's a stimulant. It's sort of like caffeine. It just, if you're tired, mm -hmm. it makes you more awake. Um, right. Whereas there's something that is happening with a psychedelic that is occurring at the interplay of your emotional sense, your sense of memory, your perceptual sense. And, uh, and so the individual is bringing a lot more to the experience from their own consciousness or so it feels, you know, you could, you could argue, I suppose that caffeine is the same, but at least intuitively and experientially, it does feel like this is operating in a very personal individual way that, um, things like caffeine or nicotine are not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just interesting that let's say if you listen to all these growing talks on clubhouse about psychedelics, I feel like 80% is conversations are conducted in this over spiritualized language. Like it takes sometimes 10 minutes until the conversation really starts before everybody has said that it's such an amazing, spiritual, beautiful. And it's like, okay, guys, what do you, what do you actually <laughs> would like to talk about? It's just that it seems to me, maybe they all come from California, these talks, I don't know, but it's just very, huh. it's very interesting how this is taking, I'm not going to say taking over the narrative, but do you know what I mean? It's very much kind of um, accompanied by almost like a reassurance of these people that they dealing with something like almost like, like a, a religious substance or like, um, which it sometimes is of course, but it's really like, it really takes so such a long time sometimes to cut through the chase. Do you know what I mean? Right. And yeah, I'm wondering what it is. Yeah. I think it's because there's a lot of insecurity mm -hmm. in the world of drugs because you're, you are finding value in something that has been marginalized and prohibited by the society we live in. Mm -hmm. And so you're insecure. Many people are insecure. They feel like basically they feel some version of the same criticism that I experienced from my early work mm -hmm. and to a lesser extent from my later work where they say, you're just doing this to get high, just to get high. And so they want to communicate in their way. No, 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 no. It's not like that. I'm not just doing this to get high. I'm doing it because I really appreciate it. And they have their own framework for showing their appreciation, which is a, a non-materialist spiritual framework. And, and so they emphasize that to show that they're serious, mm -hmm. but uh, it can paradoxically make them look unserious and wacky and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. unhinged to someone who has a, a more scientific standpoint. But really science is maybe another side of the same coin in that um, while maybe these people on Clubhouse are going to talk about their spiritual training or whatever or how they, you know, I've, I've barely used Clubhouse. I went to one thing on it one time and I was slightly put off, I must admit, <laughs> by the discussion. I never tried it again. Yeah. But uh But I think it, what they're really is just trying to say, yes, I take this seriously. Mm. So I, and maybe I'm doing the same thing when I say, you know, you want me to lecture you about the chemistry of psilocybin or DMT. I could talk to you for 10 minutes about how it's synthesized and, you know, how it's purified and the dose response and everything like that. And maybe that's my way of simply saying, I take this seriously. I care about it, mm -hmm. but they are investing in a different way. Yeah, that's, I mean, make, makes total sense what you're saying. It's just so interesting that 
on Clubhouse, meaning when people actively talk about it, it becomes so much more than if you, I don't know, if you read articles or if you see some other things on YouTube. It's just that it seems like a reassurance that they're in it for the right reasons because it's something so, you know, what, what people, what, what could you say against somebody who, who thinks of it as a highly only spiritual substance and hardly anybody could have something against that, for example. It's just interesting how this is so dominant there, which I, I started to realize in, in the last weeks. But so this is just the beginning yeah. of Clubhouse uh, in Europe, though. I mean, that's <laughs> maybe this will change. Yeah, and I'm fine with it. You know, I'm fine with people conceptualizing these things however they want, as long as they don't let their personal concept interfere with other people's use. Yeah. And it really only becomes a problem when it's aggressive or turns into its own form of petty prohibitionist thinking like yeah. people shouldn't be allowed to have pharmaceutical psilocybin because it lacks the spirit of the right. mushroom yeah. or something of that nature. And you do of course run into people who have that line of thought um, yeah. who they think that because something isn't a, a plant, then it lacks the, the spirit. And then they're kind of trying to diminish another person's type of use. Of course, I wouldn't say that about a indigenous group that feels that way because they have a, a tradition and a, a genuine spiritual understanding, one that sometimes exists in a environment where there isn't a scientific materialist alternative. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different scenario. So, totally. you know, the Native American Church of America, um, some members object to the idea of using mescaline as a substitute for peyote, even though peyote is endangered, it's threatened in the wild, it's over harvested, it's often harvested in an unsustainable way. And so it's very easy to make a case that synthetic mescaline would represent a more viable replacement that would make the material more accessible to a larger number of people, but they don't like that idea. And given the legacy of oppression of Native Americans, who am I to come in and say, hey, you know, your harvesting practices might be unsustainable. You really should check out this synthetic yeah. alternative to what you've been doing for the last, uh, you know, 100 or so years. That's true. But I mean, I think a lot of people who would like to not have the synthetic versions often are able to fly to a retreat whereas people at one point who might get this as medication might not be able to go on a plane and go to costa rica for for the weekend or something so that's also something that is yeah. um but i mean i'm curious because you you met a lot of indigenous people because you what well, i mean since we know so you went there often for research, for, for doing your, um, your show. So, I mean, it's often if you, if you watch documentaries about ayahuasca, it's very briefly that you see some people, mostly shamans, uh, doing the ayahuasca ceremony. H how was your experience? And, and what, what would you say was the, what the thing, what's the thing you really learned from them, what you really took with you? Well, I wouldn't say that I've learned any one thing, you know, I've, observed so many different indigenous traditions relating to psychoactive drugs. But, you know, I think that there is a, a lot of different small lessons 
one is that there's a, a sort of ceremonial appreciation that isn't present in the unstructured psychedelic use that's most common in the United States. Um, the role of music, the role of community, and maybe most importantly, the role of taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that's another aspect of this. When I hear of somebody having a, a difficult experience with a psychedelic, it's often someone who simply didn't take it seriously, mm -hmm. who they, you know, they thought, okay, I was with some friends at a party and someone had a mushroom chocolate and I ate the mushroom chocolate and then I felt afraid and then I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, this is someone who hadn't planned their experience, who didn't know the dose that they'd consumed, who hadn't carefully scrutinized the environment that they would be in. And all of those things can very easily contribute to an undesirable experience or even one that just doesn't have the optimal benefit because you're distracted by you know, whatever, strangers at a concert. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you're distracted by fear of law enforcement. Maybe you're distracted by fear that the dose you've taken is either too high or too low. And if you do these things simply in a way that is intentional and serious, I think you can eliminate a lot of those problems. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, and I mean, what was your... But what was the ex psychedelic experience that you had that really, let's say, brought you to a moment where you were like, okay, this is something I would really would like to look into more? I mean, probably, of course, as we know, you, you started very early on to experiment with this in your shows. But I mean, was there a specific experience where you realized what this could mean for you as a experience or as a future Yeah, life with psychedelics? I think, you know, most of the experiences really, if anything, reinforce that. I, my early experiences with salvia were very mm -hmm. important because I'd never used a psychedelic previously. So those were the uh, introduction to the basic idea that there were these drugs that had very complicated, almost ineffable effects on consciousness that uh, were fascinating and kind of redefined what I thought of when I thought the word drug. And, uh, and that's been basically an experience that I've had repeatedly with these things as I've tried different things is just, this is so fascinating. Why wouldn't you care about this people always act like it's weird to be interested in psychoactive drugs like it's they'll ask me like how do you why are you interested in this how are you interested in this like it's you know like i'm interested in repairing world war ii tiger yeah. counters or like exactly. or some kind of really obscure yeah. thing and, it's okay uh, i mean <laughs> and, and uh and it's you know it's, this is like i think one you know whereas if you were interested in food no one would ever no. say like, why are you interested in food? If you're interested in music. No one would say, why are you interested? How, how on earth did you get interested in music? It's sort of self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. Whereas with this people, um, I don't really understand why, given how important drugs are to so many people, you know, this is like one of the most important cultural forces in existence. It, in terms of law enforcement, in terms of medicine, in terms of history, in terms of religion. Um, it, it's like, 
hard to name something that has a more far reaching effect on society. And yet it's still this marginalized thing. Like, how'd you get into that, into that weird subject? It's like, this is huge. This is everything. Um, and, and especially because so many people in the United States, at least consume drugs all the time, um, antidepressants, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, cannabis. This is not, it's not a, a subculture by any yeah. s- stretch of imagination. It is the culture. It's true. Yeah. But that's, that's exactly the thing that's coming out now, right? That it's basically, um, nicotine and, and caffeine could be on a similar level, like other substances that are at the moment still psychedelics. So, but I mean, um, I find interesting that of course now most people would look into psychedelics in terms of, yeah, kind of enhancing their therapy or just make it more effective or even treat their depression. And, um, I mean, I, last October I started ketamine therapy and before I had done psilocybin. So, but I think after these two things, it's almost like, even if you don't really use it in, in terms of mental health, like severe mental health problems, but just try to kind of, yeah, change your therapy outcome. I think after this, it's really impossible to come back to an, your, your worldview that you had before. It's just because I feel it's so interesting once you start to communicate with your subconsciousness in a different way that, um, it's really, um, to me, like if you really think fast forward that people could just in five years, everybody could go to a therapist and undergo psychedelic therapy. I always wonder if this, how this really would change. I mean, it sounds so corny, but how this could really change this world right now. Do, do you ever think about these things or is this too crazy to think about? Oh no, of course I do. Yeah. I think that, I think that there's a lot of people that don't use psychedelics I mean, probably something around, uh, not including ketamine and cannabis, probably something around 90% of the population Mm -hmm. doesn't use psychedelics in the United States and, uh, maybe 80. And, um, and so thinking about, well, what will happen when those people also have valuable experiences with psychedelics and how will that change? drug policy, how will that change the way we treat mental illness? I think it's a very exciting possibility that these things could help a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about what might occur. You know, historically, they've been such an anarchic class of substances that every time it seems like they're on the cusp of approval, something happens and they mm-hmm. fall by the wayside and they're prohibited again, or they fall out of favor. And, you know, being aware of that, I'm always a little bit afraid of what might happen again. But uh, I think that if we're able to pull it off this time, the results could be really extraordinary in a number of different domains, probably in areas we haven't even consider, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that's, I think what's most exciting is what is unknown, the things that we don't know that psychedelics can do, or that these related compounds can do, maybe they represent very effective treatments for inflammation, maybe 
this could revolutionize the way end of life care is done right. in terms of, you know, hospice or things like that. Maybe, um, maybe a number of different valuable outcomes could be imagined. And, uh, and I'm really excited about all of it. But, but do you think it's a human thing that people, that the human being wants to change and come back as a new person a couple of times in their lives? Isn't that something, I feel sometimes this is something that human beings actually are yearning for almost, in a way. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of cultures, you have a, a rite of passage, yeah. you have yeah. various rituals that mark different aspects of your life trajectory. And there is very little of that in our culture. Um, there's also for every person that wants to transform There are many people that are um, almost addicted to a sense of control yeah. and they're terrified by the idea of changing anything about themselves because they really don't like the idea of losing any aspect of control over their psychology and they don't want to change. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the, the things that's not talked about a lot with addiction is, you know, the first thing in trying to stop a substance that you have a problematic relationship with is you have to want to stop it. You have to say, okay, this is actually having a negative effect. I don't want this. There's many people out there that are habitual users of this or that substance that could be considered a, a disorder who just don't want to change. Mm. They, they are for better or worse happy with their daily use of buprenorphine or methadone or heroin or cocaine or alcohol or nicotine or Ritalin or whatever, or cannabis. And so um, that's, you know, another side of this is that although there are, of course, are people that want some sort of transformation, there are probably just as many people that are afraid of transformation and want stability and control. But I mean, this is something I talked to um, I think Ben Sessa about that a lot of, he said that, that he has a lot of people, uh, patients with depression who actually one of the biggest obstacles for them is to say, well, um, if people would ask him, oh, who are you? And say, I'm so-and-so and I have depression. So what happens if let's say the depression becomes the, your identity, basically what, what over years and what if that suddenly disappears. So that's also something that's, that's kind of coming. I feel like in a, in a couple of scientists actually starting to research that kind of identity question in, in terms of mental health, like once this identity of your, you being a mental health um, patient, what, what if that disappears? Who are you then basically? Right. And I think that's one of the problems with medicalizing a lot of mm -hmm. uh, both substance use and even some forms of psychopathology uh, is that it can serve as a justification. So, you know, it's all fine and good if you want to talk about there being um, a disorder associated with substance abuse. But you have to ask yourself, well, why is that so important? I was talking to someone recently who Uh, had had an article written about them where they uh, a friend they felt a friend betrayed them and they wrote all these 
horrible things that they'd done, how they'd lied to people, how they'd manipulated people. And, and she was saying, well, yeah, it's all true that I did these things, but why didn't they say that I was a drug addict, an amphetamine addict? Why didn't okay. they acknowledge that I had a disease? Because isn't that crucial for contextualizing why I did what I did? And, you know, the reason that this person cared so much about their amphetamine addiction being medicalized and conceptualized as a disorder is because it absolves them of responsibility for the bad things right. that they did. That's mm -hmm. why they care. I mean, if, if they are being honest with themselves, um, if it didn't, they wouldn't care. They what, what is the, it's that by saying that I have a disorder that people will then say, okay, okay. So that that's explains fine. Yeah. And maybe even, mm -hmm. uh, forgives some of the things that you have done. And we do that a lot. We use drugs as excuses for bad behavior. And, um, and there isn't a, a culture of personal responsibility in the United States, at least. Um, I think a lot of people are very drawn to conceptualizing themselves as victims so that, and the reason is that if you are a victim, then you don't bear personal responsibility for the bad things that have occurred. So maybe you became addicted to Oxycontin. Well, is that a choice that you made? Or are you a victim of a predatory pharmaceutical company that's evil? Mm -hmm. And if you're a victim of a predatory pharmaceutical company, well, then maybe it's not so bad that you spent your life savings on drugs and you lost your job and you made a lot of bad decisions because you're just a, you know, you were just a victim who had a disease and that's that you can't blame someone that right. is a, a yeah. victim with the disease. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, again, I understand why people do that, but I think that it's ultimately not good if the point is to try to create a society where we are free because there is a price to be paid for conceptualizing yourself as a victim. If you say that you can't, exist in a world where pharmaceutical opioids are available, well, then that gives the government permission to say, okay, well, then we need to prohibit these things. We need to restrict them because people aren't able to control their use in the presence of these substances. So they can't be available. Um, so that's, I think that's what people often forget in this short sighted self victimization narrative is that there is a cost associated with it. It may seem like it's just win-win. I don't have to take responsibility for my choices. Right. If I call myself, uh, you know, say that I have a disorder or I'm a victim of some kind of, uh, predatory capitalist scheme. Um, but the cost is that you are creating a world where people feel that they don't have control over their own behaviors and where the government is, uh, feels justified in restricting people's liberty. Yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting point that is hardly brought up in, in this whole new psychedelic discussion. So, but before we go, what one, one thing I would like to talk about is that you are looking into this, let's say, problem toad vernum versus DMT, which touches a little bit on the, on our topic, like how can substances be um, synthetic and have to be kind of harvested and, and so kind of very restricted at that point. So um, can you talk a little bit about that 
let's say, I mean, I think I think it's a very specific, a very a very good example of how a lot of substances that are so-called like naturally grown but just kind of rarely to to get will at one point not be replaced by um, synthetic substances, but we can't just rely on just um, only going into the fields and, and just take everything that basically also belongs to, to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is something that I, I've been thinking about a lot is that the idea behind a lot of prohibitionist policy was that we've got to protect people from drugs, but it also had the effect of protecting drugs from people. And because these things have historically been somewhat marginalized, um, you know, it hasn't been that much of a problem if people want to harvest an old ayahuasca vine or they want to cut down an aboga shrub or they want to harvest a lot of peyote because not that many people were doing it. But the natural reserves of these different substances are not great enough to support a mainstream use of these substances. They will be eradicated by over-harvesting. It's just a fact. Um, and it's probably happened before in history. You know, there's a plant called silphium that was once a medicinal plant that was harvested to the point of extinction. Um, and it could happen again. So I think that it's just, you know, it's all, it's all fine and good to appreciate the chemical complexity of a plant or a fungus, but it's just important to keep in mind that there is, yeah, there's an important conservationist element that has to be acknowledged. You know, is it worth it to hunt toads to extinction? Is it worth it to over harvest a boga, especially when, there's still basic research that needs to be done. You know, there, mm -hmm. there hadn't been any publications at all on the chemistry of Bufuel various venom until very recently. There was one that came out uh, a couple months ago that was great. And there was another one maybe um, in uh, 2019 that was a little more minimal. And before that, it had been almost, this, I think, the 60s that the last published report had come out. So you know, we're still learning basic things about what alkaloids are present in some of these materials, what the pharmacology of those alkaloids are. And I would hate to see the natural resources destroyed before we've even had the opportunity to adequately study them. Um, you know, another example would be cannabis, where whether you believe in the pharmacological significance of all of these accessory cannabinoids, I think that they're um, often somewhat overblown in their impact. But regardless, it's very clear now that at least from a marketing perspective, there's tremendous interest in all of these unusual cannabinoids that often are only present in some variety that has either been artificially cultivated or um, isolated from some obscure geographical region. And so um, what if we just never cultivated cannabis and it just decimated the natural population, we'd be in trouble. We couldn't do all this work that we're doing now that is dependent on um, having a large number of plants to analyze and understand. And, and that's, you know, that's cannabis, which is one of the most analyzed plants known to science. 
So we're still discovering new cannabinoids in cannabis, which has been analyzed uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times. So you then think about something like Bufuel varius venom or a boga that is relatively obscure and all that is left to be understood. You know, I did an analysis of iboga fruit recently. No one had ever published that before. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of basic research that's left to be done. And I think that it would just be tragic if people over harvested these things before we had the opportunity to fully understand them. Right. Yeah, that, that's true. So I have one, one last question. I hope that still works with you. Um, is there something, because I feel psychedelics actually what it, they did to me I, i feel like i always have another big question that's coming out of the last experience and i feel like i mean i have just done everything in a guided and and like great set and setting but still i feel like in a way i have more, way more questions than before so what is your big question for psychedelics is there one big question that you totally would like to answer yourself and you just you know what i mean they have more questions to that questions the more you get into it yeah i'm kind of an anti-big question person okay I'm a, i'm a great lover of small <laughs> questions a, i think that the small question is dramatically underappreciated because even the small questions are often very very big questions so people are saying how are we going to understand consciousness yeah how are we going to cure depression You know, I'm, you know, for like a, an example of a small question, I was completely, completely fascinated by the chemistry of the blue material in psilocybin containing mushrooms. What is that? It wasn't until very recently that people even figured out what the structure of that chemical was. I wanted to figure it out. I'd done analysis on the blue pigment. It was actually um, somewhat difficult to analytically characterize, which is why it took people so long and which is why I wasn't able to do it. Mm -hmm. But uh, a brilliant group of chemists figured it out. And I love that. I love a, a good small question because the nice thing about a small question is it can be answered. You know, if the, if the point is to actually try to answer these things and to chip away yeah. at the, the big questions, you have to start with small bite-sized questions. So I've got a lot of small questions that I genuinely hope to answer in the coming years. And, uh, and then maybe that can be my contribution to some small part of the bigger question. Pretty sure. Yeah. That's actually a good strategy actually, because, yeah. um, uh, yeah, no, it makes, makes total sense. And so, um, thank you very much. It was really interesting. And yeah. Have you had a chance to see any of the new show by any, but the new the, do you mean with the one with the gas, with the, um, the scene on gas? Yeah. yeah. Henrik has seen it already. Let's yeah, talk about the show less now. Interesting, less interesting to me. And I think it's just less interesting work. Whereas the new stuff yeah. is really worth checking out. Um, it is. Yeah. The third season has a lot of, uh, fascinating work. It, depending on where you're located, it can be a little bit difficult to yeah. track down, but You can torrent it. You can yeah. it, get it on Amazon, get it on iTunes, yeah. get it on YouTube. It's uh, it's it's certainly circulating. And I also have a podcast that I've been making now as well that you can oh, listen okay. to at patreon.com. Right, the, the whole, do you have a whole Patreon channel, you could say, right? I mean, there's not only yeah. a podcast. Yeah. But I mean, let, let's quickly yeah. talk about this. So you went to, to this clinic and tried this this specific gas. 
So yeah, and that's just one episode yeah. from the new season. There are it's six new pieces that I think are all interesting. But yes, one of them was at a Czech, Czech. xenon mm-hmm. clinic. Yeah. And how did you actually find that at all? This clinic. I mean, I found it the way I find a lot of things, which is just talking to people. Um, I never studied journalism or anything like that, but um, I talk to people all the time and I listen to the stories that people have. And it's always amazing to me how even having been in this world, thinking about it every day for a decade, how there are things that I don't know about that I can learn about. And someone said, you know, hey, what's the deal with these xenon clinics? And I had tried xenon in 2014 because a a chemist friend of mine had a tank of it in New Zealand. And I thought I was essentially one of the only people to try it. I knew that there had been some small medical studies that had been done and a couple of psychonaut types had tried it. But I thought, okay, that's a one-off experience. That's a little wonderful, rare opportunity that I had. I'll never have it again, but I can always remember the time that I inhaled a little bit of xenon gas mm-hmm. in 2014, what a treat that was. <laughs> and, uh, and then somebody contacted me and they said, Hey, you know, there's, there's clinics that are doing this. I'd never heard anything about it because at the time there was nothing written about it in English. If you looked online, you know, this was something that existed in Russia and the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. possibly in India, possibly some other places, but certainly not in the United States. And, uh, and I almost didn't believe it. And then I was connected with the proprietor of one of these clinics and it was a whole world that opened up that I didn't know about. It was totally fascinating. But when you say it was such a treat, what, what, what exactly, now it's a small question, what was exactly the treat? Well, the, the treat in that case is raw, unadulterated euphoria. You know, there's something very psychologically interesting about the classical psychedelics where they can promote self-reflection, self-awareness, critical self-observation, metacognition, all these things that are uh, useful in self-understanding. This did not have that. This is, you know, just intense, ultra-hedonistic euphoria, like someone has flipped a switch in your brain to give you a sense of maximum pleasure for a few moments that then dissipates. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, so psychologically, not so interesting, but pharmacologically, very interesting. And people are even trying to use that now as a treatment for PTSD. Oh, uh, there's okay. A, a pharmaceutical okay. company in the United States that's trying to release it, a xenon inhaler. So right. That people can use. The inhaler. Yeah. But I mean, as far yeah. as I remember from the Tim Ferriss episode, it was pretty dramatic in, in that clinic. It was dramatic. Yes. Yeah, it was. And and that's another thing that, you know, we were talking at the beginning of the discussion about the responsibility associated with these things. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not, I don't even really consider myself a journalist and I'm certainly not a journalist in the sense that I want to expose people or write negative things about people. I just would prefer not to even involve myself with somebody if I don't want to say something nice about them. Uh, I never go into any of these projects with the desire to try to take someone down. Of course. Um, But, well, I mean, many people do kind of have this desire to diminish people for one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an old, I mean, I feel here this is a very old idea of journalism where you just come into, I mean, criticism and exposure is your only 
goal of things. So. Yeah. But I mean, so so, but tell if if you want to, it would be interesting to how this. Yes. Yeah. So so I didn't want to say anything negative about them, and and even some of the more controversial things that they were doing, like giving xenon to children, which you could say, well, how on earth could they possibly justify doing that? Well, based on everything that's known about the pharmacology and toxicology of xenon, um, it's probably safer to give it to a child than nitrous oxide, which is routinely given to children. So that uh, that was a little weird, but it wasn't something that I felt justified calling them out for their unsafe practices. But as I spent more time at this clinic, it became clear that the fact that the proprietors were not medically trained was a problem. There was somebody who almost uh, aspirated on their vomit, could have been fatal. Thankfully, it wasn't. And uh, there was also some early indication that the people who were working there, who I liked personally, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wish I, I think they're fine people. I think their heart was in the right place. I think that they um, just found themselves in the presence of a tool that they were not fully equipped to use responsibly. And that's often the case. These are very, very powerful tools and people can become almost addicted, not just to the drug, but to the power of what the drug does to other people. You see that a lot in the toad venom community that people become almost addicted to the transformation that they observe when they give it to others. Um, and so I think that maybe something a little bit similar was happening where ah, they were seduced by the power of what they were doing and they were a little bit incautious. And ultimately, one of the people at the clinic died uh, shortly after I had finished filming there. And so oh. that was a, a really sad um, confrontation with the fact that, yeah, these things can can be dangerous, even if, you know, if, if you look at the medical literature xenon is very safe it's non-toxic but you have to inhale oxygen at the same time you can't just inhale xenon so um if you're not administering it with that level of awareness tragic things can happen okay wow yeah it sounded pretty i mean it must be a very strange moment when you also filmed the whole thing and then something like this happens but i mean yeah. um Last question, because we could go on forever. And um, so, I mean, how would you like to that people would talk and film and write about psychedelics in, in the coming years? I mean, obviously, it's going into a mainstream. Um, you have like Conde Nast magazines writing about ketamine clinics. Ketamine clinics look like Soho House. So obviously, there's a huge step forward in terms of, I mean, the, the short uh, version would be like that it comes into the mainstream also at one point into psychiatry. But still, as we said earlier, it's still a very specific, I mean, it, it's, it's very quick that you can make many mistakes in communicating it, why it's so great or why you should do it or how it could replace your antidepressants. So what, what is your biggest desire to communicate this in, in, the next, in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is that journalists have to be aware of the power that they have, because I think they often don't fully appreciate that. They just write some article like, you know, Delta 8 THC, it's the new hot 
cannabinoid and they don't think, well, what are the policy implications of this? What are the toxicological implications of this? And I hope that people understand how much responsibility is associated with talking about these things. Um, and that people are cautious and don't push their hysteria in one direction or another, because it seems like there's always a good guy and a bad guy mm -hmm. in these narratives. And usually, at least in the way that, yeah, the way that they're presented, there's a good guy and a bad guy. In reality, there isn't. But people still want to fall into these patterns where maybe in the past, the bad guy was the drug dealer or right. the bad guy yeah. was um, the person that used the drug even. Now, the bad guy is going to be the pharmaceutical Right, company. yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> and so that's going to be the fashionable way to report on this is figure out a way to write some uh, shrill and moralistic objection to the pharmaceutical implementation of psychedelics. Well, I, I think people should be vigilant. And I absolutely think that should something truly unethical occur, that it should be reported on. But I also think that once there is an established demand for a certain type of story, like an evil pharmaceutical company story, then people stop seeing the bigger picture and they start um, just sort of robotically repeating the same narratives where it's like, and, and I understand where people are coming from with this anti-pharmaceutical stuff. They're kind of thinking about it in terms of what is ideal, like, and, and sometimes idealism can interfere with a more pragmatic attitude toward this, this area that historically has been a total disaster. So it's like people are saying like, oh, the pharmaceutical companies are not the ideal way to do this. Well, I in part agree. I think that everything should be possible. I think people should be able to cultivate and synthesize their own psychedelics. I think pharmaceutical companies should be able to sell them. I think there should be a FDA approved therapeutic modality. I think there should be unstructured therapy for, I think whatever people want, I think it should be available. I have a, a laissez-faire attitude toward this, but uh, I think when people get so caught up in saying that they, it should be this way yeah. and only this way, mm -hmm. they're not appreciating how extraordinary it is that this is happening at all. You know, it very easily could not be happening at all. We could have the same situation where there's no resources for research, where there's no hope of these things being FDA approved medicines, where people are still getting locked in cages for using and possessing and manufacturing these things. And any step in the right direction is something that I support. Great. Well, thank you, Hamilton. It was amazing to have you on the show. And um, I hope you come back soon with another round of new news from the chemist, <laughs> from, your, mm. from your new uh, career as a chemist or your old new career as a chemist. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show. And please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course. There's also a new health club now. Or even better, sign up to a newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de 
I talk to you very soon.